And then as I was thinking and pondering and praying and preparing for this week, I realized that there was something in it that I missed, that I wanted to go back to. Now, as we were getting started, I said that I wanted you to recognize that the book of Mark is an epic story that's fast-paced, thrilling account of the greatest character ever to walk the earth. And I encouraged you to take some time last week to listen to the entirety of the book straight through. Now, I'm hopeful that many of you were able to do that. I know some of you contacted me and were like, well, how do I get onto a website that can do that or or different things like that? And that's perfectly fine. You're more than welcome to call for technical advice. I'm not exactly 100% up on technology, but we were at least able to get some of you. If you weren't able to take the time to listen to it all the way through, I want to encourage you to do that. Um, it's, there's a cohesiveness to the book of Mark and really to all of scripture that, that gives us value from being able to, to go through the entirety of it, to catch all of what's going on. And some, some people even commented to me how interesting it was to see the number of times that it says immediately. And, and that just uh, progression as it's going through the book, immediately this, immediately that, immediately. And as you go through, you pick up on, on different things that are, are really fast-paced. But here's the deal. Just because the book is fast-paced doesn't mean that our study through it's going to be very fast-paced. So I, it is my intention to slow way down and dig in. And there's so much that we can find in it. Um, and so we are going to be taking time to be able to do some of those things. And if I realize that I missed something that that would be of great value to us, we're going to go back and we're going to dig into that a little bit as well. But um, as I introduced the the book, I commented that there are really, it's built around three confessions that happen throughout the book. The very first verse says, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And that's really what the entire book is setting up and is focusing in on, who this Christ is, who this Son of God is. About halfway through the book, we see Peter's confession. And Peter comes out and just says, you are the Christ. And that, that was in uh, chapter 8, verse 29. And then we get all the way to the end of the book in chapter 15, 39. There's a centurion, a Gentile, someone who is steeped in the Roman culture, who also realizes truly this man was the Son of God. And that, that creates the, the entirety of the picture of this book. And I told you last week, if you get nothing else from the study of this book, the main thing, the big picture that I want you to get is Jesus is the Son of God. He is the fulfillment of prophecy. He was dead, he was buried, and he rose again. And because that is true, it should change your life. That's what Mark is focusing in on. And he does that through a lot of of the accounts. I I was saying stories, story account, they are true. This is what has happened. And Mark is recording that for us. He is telling us certain things about who Jesus is. And he wants us to know. As he goes through this process, he starts off at the first part, emphasizing that Jesus is the mighty Messiah. It's going to be a display of his power and of his authority, of his abilities, of all that he is capable of doing. And we're going to see some amazing miracles that happen and all kinds of things of that nature. And that's what leads up to Peter's confession, this is the Christ. But then the 
book of Mark kind of takes a, a turn. And it becomes a little bit different, a little bit odd. Because what Mark wants us to understand, yes, Jesus is the powerful, mighty Messiah. He is the fulfillment of prophecy. But a lot of people misunderstood those prophecies. A lot of people, they were expecting Jesus to come in and, and take over and beat out the Roman Empire and take over and set up his kingdom right then, right there. And what Mark then moves into is showing us that he is the suffering servant. That he is, Yes, he's the fulfillment of prophecy. Yes, he is powerful. Yes, he is all of these things. But the way that he leads, the way that he establishes himself and his kingdom, the way that he's going to do these things is as a servant. And in the, in the bulletins, I had uh, Robin print Mark chapter 10, verse 45, that emphasizes that Christ didn't come to be served. He didn't come to take over and to rule everything and, and be dictator over all. He came to be the servant of all, to, to serve as um, the servant of God. And that's why so much of this book is about what he does. You'll notice we're, we're about to start in the first section of the book, and there is no genealogy. Well, why is that? Because, you know, Matthew, the, the Gospel of Matthew, really wanted to present Christ as the king who is coming. But Mark is saying he's a servant, and no one pays attention to servants' lineage and background. A slave is not worthy of, of that kind of reputation or, or anything of that nature. And so Mark doesn't deal with his, his genealogy or his background. Mark doesn't really focus in on a lot of his words and the things that he teaches, but he focuses in on what he does, on how he serves the Lord and how he fulfills what God sent him to do. Now, last week we, we went through uh, why it was written, how it was written, different, different aspects of the book, but I didn't take the time to dig into who wrote it. And who is Mark? What's, what's his backstory? What's going on there? Um, in the pre-study, I had given you a bunch of verses that you could look at. But as I, was, as I was preparing for this week and looking at different things, I realized, you know, there are certain things that we need to dig into. We need to understand about Mark and what's going on as he's writing this. And so I want to go back and, and take just a little look at who Mark is before we get into the first eight verses of the text. Now, we are going to get to those, um, but I think that it's, it's important to establish who is this Mark. Now, tradition says that Mark was an assistant to Peter, that he was a translator. And there's a lot of primary and secondary witnesses throughout the early church history that Mark traveled with Peter and did a bunch of things. At the same time, we can go through different portions of Scripture and find out a little bit about him. So let's, let's take a look at Acts chapter 12. This is the first time that Mark is mentioned. Now, uh, you'll recall as you go through Scripture, sometimes the same name is used of different people. We don't really see a lot of other Marks that are listed. There's, there's one. He goes by the name John Mark. So sometimes you'll see John Mark or just Mark. Um, but that, that is really, it looks like the only person by the name of Mark in the Bible is this Mark who writes the gospel. But in Acts chapter 12 is the first time that he comes onto the scene. Um, you'll recall the story, Peter had been in prison, right? And all of a sudden, an angel brings him out. And, and that's a great episode. There's, there's some really cool stuff that happens during that. I, I would encourage you to go back and read through that. But he gets out of prison... And the first thing that 
that Peter does is he goes to a local church. He goes to a, a house church where they were praying for him. And when you, when you realize that, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John. This is uh, Acts chapter 12, verse 12. He went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who is also called Mark. And there were gathered together, and they, many, were gathered together there and were praying. So he goes to this prayer meeting at this house of a lady by the name of Mary. And her son is John Mark. That's the first that we see uh, Mark come into the scene. Now, that combined with uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13, leads some people to believe that Peter was involved in leading Mark to the Lord or in his early discipleship or, or somehow involved in some of those things. But uh, we do see that Peter went to his house uh, where the, the church was gathered to pray for Peter and for others who were being persecuted at that time. Now, at the end of Acts chapter 12, we find uh, two individuals, Barnabas and Saul, are getting ready to go on a missionary journey. They're going to go start establishing other churches. And in verse 25, it says, Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John, who was also called Mark. And so uh, apparently this is a, a young man who joins with Paul and Barnabas, and he's getting ready to go on a missionary journey. This is probably very exciting. We don't know a whole lot about how old he was or anything like that, but he was associated both with Peter as well as with Paul, and he gets the opportunity of a lifetime. I mean, how many of you would just love to get to go on a missionary trip with Paul the Apostle? That would be, that would be something else for sure. Well, Mark gets that opportunity. Do what? Well, you know, Paul... Paul did have to endure a few things, the beatings, the shipwreck, a bunch of... And yet, what an exciting thing that would be. And Mark got that opportunity. Now, we don't know for sure why, but in uh, chapter 13, we find out a little bit more about those travels. In 13 verse 5, uh, it says that he was their helper. Um, when they reached... And when they reached Salmas, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews. They also had John as their helper. So he was there helping them out, going and, and getting to see and witness this, this time when Paul was preaching and was, was sharing the gospel and establishing churches. And, and I think that would be awesome and amazing. But in verse 13, it says, Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos, and came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now, there's been a lot of ink spilt as people write about why John left. And some will say, well, it's the pers persecution and the beatings and the shipwrecks. And the, or some will say, well, he just got tired of listening to Paul. Or some will say, I mean, there's all kinds of reasons. The Bible doesn't tell us why. And I, I don't think that we need to read into it and, and, and try and say, well, you know, he must have left for this reason or for that reason. It just says that he left. What we do know, though, is that when he left and returned to Jerusalem, um, Paul wasn't really happy about it. Now, we don't know why he left. And, and there could have been really good reasons or really not good reasons. But Paul was not very pleased. And in Acts chapter 15, verse 36, we find that 
Paul and Barnabas, this is after that first missionary journey. They finish their travels. They, they go around. They establish a lot of churches. They report back to Antioch. And then they want to go and they want to revisit a lot of those churches. Um, <clears throat> starting off in, in verse 35, uh, Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch, teaching and preaching with many others also the word of the Lord. And after some days... Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaimed the word of the Lord, and see how they are. And Barnabas was desirous of taking John, called Mark, along with them also. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along, who had deserted them in Pamphylia, and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another. And Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. Now, if you remember the story and the account of Paul and Barnabas, they had done this amazing missionary journey. They had established churches. They had served the Lord. And things were going great. And then, when they're getting ready to go on their second journey, they separate. There's such a massive disagreement that they aren't able to work together anymore. And they each go their separate way. Now, I'll admit I've never really been satisfied with the explanation given. This, this is just me, but I always wish that the Bible would tell us who was right. Was Paul right or was Barnabas right? If you've, if you've studied this and you've looked at it, I'm, I'm seeing a few faces like, yep, yep, I've been thinking that same thing. Have you ever wondered who was at fault here? Whose fault was it that they couldn't get along? The Bible doesn't tell us. I, I wish it did personally because I'm curious about that, but... That's not what God wanted to reveal to us. He didn't want to tell us why. What he tells us is that they had a division. What it does tell us is what happens next. Now, like I said, personally, I, I would love to know who was right, who was wrong, what was the argument, how did it go, why couldn't they get along. But what the Bible does tell us is a very important lesson. And, and this is what I wanted to, to go back and take a look at. You see, it would be very easy to just leave it right there and say, okay, they fought over whether or not to take John Mark with them, and they couldn't get along, so Paul, he goes off and does his thing, Barnabas, he goes off and does his thing, and that's it. That's the end of the story. But it's not. It's not. As we go through Scripture, we find actually that quite a bit comes up. In Colossians chapter 4, we see the next mention of this, this man. Colossians chapter 4 and verse 10. He's, he's, uh, this is Paul. Now, remember, it's Paul who did not want to take Mark with him. And again, we don't know all the details. We didn't get the, the nitty-gritty of why and, and what was said and all of that, but it was severe enough that they separated. They went their separate ways. But in verse 10 of Colossians chapter 4, Paul writes, uh, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greeting. Also Barnabas, cousin, Barnabas's cousin, Mark, about whom you've received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. Apparently... Paul is telling this church in Colossae to welcome Mark because Mark's back on, in the ministry. Mark's back traveling. And 
Paul has given some instructions. We don't know exactly what the instructions are, but is telling him to go and be a part of certain things and, and to be welcomed into the church if Mark's able to come. We find uh, Paul telling the church to welcome Mark if he comes. He's also listed as one of only two that are from the circumcision that have proved to be an encouragement to Paul. That seems quite a turnaround, if you ask me. And then in Philemon, he comes up again. Book of Philemon, it's a short one. There's only one chapter. So in, in I guess you could call it chapter 1, verse 24, it appears not only is Mark being recommended, but he's actually with Paul, serving with him. And, and he is referred to as a fellow worker. It says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as does Mark. Aristus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. And so somehow, we have this, this turnaround, this change, that went from Paul being so upset or so annoyed or, or what, whatever was going on that he could not work with Barnabas anymore over Mark, over the issue of do we take Mark or not, Paul would not work with Barnabas, to now he's saying Mark is my fellow worker. Something happened. Some kind of a turnaround occurred. We don't know all the details about it, and yet Paul is recommending Mark as someone who is a fellow worker with him. One more verse that, that he comes up in is 2 Timothy chapter 4. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11... Mark comes up one last time in Paul's writings. Now, you'll recall that this is at the end of Paul's life. He's about to be executed. He knows he's about to be executed. And he's writing to his son in the faith named Timothy, giving him some, some last instructions. And he lists several people that have left him. And, and Paul is kind of not feeling well because they have walked away. They've turned their back on ministry. They're doing their own thing. And yet... We get down to verse 11. Only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you. For he is useful to me in service, for service. And that one stands out to me. That one just blows me away. Somehow, for some reason, Paul was so against Mark coming with them that he separated from Barnabas. And now he's saying, bring Mark. I want Mark with me because he is useful. We don't know all the details. We don't know why Mark left back in, in Acts 13, nor what the disagreement was in Acts 15. What we do know is that after time, Paul makes several statements that not only express Mark's service, but also his usefulness to the ministry and his desirability as a companion. Now, so what? Why are we taking the time? Why are we going through all of these different passages and looking at all of this stuff? I think that there's an important thing for us to recognize. Mark was not done with ministry. It, it's reasonable to assume that he probably walked away and didn't fulfill his commitment and yet, God was not done with him. Mark was not finished. There was more that needed to be done. I think it's important to recognize that 
A person's fault, uh, failings, or a dispute between friends is not something that should permanently bar from ministry. I don't know about you, but I know that there have been times in my life where someone has wronged me. Someone has, has betrayed a trust or failed to live up to a commitment or done something that caused a rift and a split. And it seems that that's what happened between Paul and Barnabas because of Mark. And so the reason that I wanted to go back to this was to dig into, okay, what are we supposed to do in those situations? What, what should we be focused on? What should be, we be looking at? Now, again, we don't know how much time took for this restoration, but you'll recall Paul is constantly out preaching the gospel, which is a message of restoration between a fallen, sinful man and a perfect, pure, and holy God. And I'm going to guess that there's someone that you are thinking of right now with whom you've had a major disagreement or a major split or all kinds of problems. And if, if you're like me, you struggle to overcome it and you want to hold a grudge. I've, I've heard of individuals who have held a grudge about someone for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And that's not good. That's not okay. That's not what God desires of us. And as I, was, as I was studying and as I was working on this, God really convicted me. Um, there are individuals that I really am not pleased with. And yet, what do we see happening? If God is a God of restoration, if God is a God of forgiveness, if, if Paul, his apostle, was able to no longer hold a grudge, what should we take from that? What should we learn from that? What's amazing is this mark who started off fairly well and then for some reason left Paul and Barnabas, didn't fulfill the commitment that he had had to, and, and caused such a disagreement to the point that they argued and had to split and had to go their separate ways. Something happened in which Paul said, you know what, I'm not going to hold a grudge against Mark. I'm not going to throw him away or say that he is worthless or not not able to be worked with anymore. And I think that there's a lot that goes on. We don't, we don't have all the information. I'm convinced that Barnabas takes Mark and trains him up and disciples him and works with him. And that's what really leads to it. And so the thing that I, I wrote down is, if God is a God of redemption, we should not hold grudges any longer than he does. How long does God hold a grudge? How long does God hold it against someone and say, you know what, nope, forget it, I'm not working with you anymore. We see the example of Paul being able to work with Mark again. We see the example of Mark turning around and writing the gospel. Probably one of the first of the, of the four gospels to be recorded, Mark writes that down and gives us a full account of, of who Jesus is. Mark spends his time and, and is dedicated to this message of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the promised one, and of spreading that. Mark ends up going around with both Paul and Peter and, and is useful for ministry. So my challenge for you, 
just with this, this little sidetrack, with this one aspect of who Mark is, if there's someone that has wronged you, if there's someone who you have split from ministering with, because maybe because of their failings, maybe because of somebody else's, what does it take to rebuild that relationship? Now, like I said, we don't know how much time happened. We don't know the whole process of who had to forgive who or, or anything of that nature. And I'm not saying that you have to be best buddies with them. But what I am saying is that you need to recognize that your personal disputes are nothing in light of the ministry that we are all called to be a part of. God has a purpose for us. God has a mission and a ministry for us. And if, if there's someone that has wronged you or that you have wronged or whatever, God is a God of restoration and He wants to fix that. He wants us to be useful. I mentioned that God used this to work on me a little bit. And one of the things, one of the, the individuals that I was holding a grudge against, um, I got word of some ministry that they were involved in. And of four people that got saved because of the ministry that they were working with. And it, it really hit me like a ton of bricks to realize, you know what, Isaac? If you're getting upset with somebody and yet God is able to use them, you really need to fix your attitude. And so I want to I challenge you in the same way. I, I know there's a lot of history and a lot of background and a lot of baggage, and we've all dealt with people. We've all dealt with issues of this nature. The ministry, the gospel, is far, far more important than any of that. So that's the mark that we're dealing with. As we turn to the, the gospel of Mark, that's who he is. He's gone through a lot. He's made his mistakes. He's a regular guy. But he's one that God has used, one that God has called, one that God has put with people, both Paul and Peter, and given them opportunity to study and to learn, to hear the gospel, to hear reports, uh, Mark also saw a lot of things, and he was able to record for us the gospel. And he was, like I said, the first one to really put it together and present it as a record of who Jesus is. And so we're going to turn our attention now to Mark chapter 1, and we're going to look at the first eight verses. And we're going to find, as we go through this study of the gospel of Mark, that he wants us to know who Jesus is. And it's interesting to me, he doesn't tell anything about himself. In the entire book, he never mentions himself directly. He doesn't say, I did this or I did that. His focus is not on him or his ministry or his abilities. He never mentions any of the stuff that I just talked about of, of he and Paul having disputes or he and Barnabas working together or, or a church being in his mom's house or any of that stuff. Why? Because it's not about him. It's not about Mark. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about Jesus. And so as we, as we go through this uh, study of the book of Mark, I want to keep the focus on Christ because that's what Mark's trying to do. And even as we turn to these first eight verses, he's going to start off telling us about John the Baptist. And it would be really, really tempting. In fact... I would encourage you to, at some point, to, to sidetrack and study who John the Baptist is. 
his background, everything that happens, what's going on with him, why is he doing what he's doing, all of that type of stuff. But that's not what Mark does. Mark doesn't give us a, a big background of John the Baptist. He doesn't tell us you know, about his parents or anything of that nature. In fact, all it says uh, in verse 4 is that John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness. And here's what he's doing. Here's what's going on. And I think that that's, that's important for us to notice and to recognize because Mark is not going to get sidetracked with these other characters and these other things that are going on. The entire gospel is focused on Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so how is it that John the Baptist fits into that is what we're about to, to take a look at. Now, as is my custom, I do want to go ahead and read all eight verses, and then we're going to spend some time digging into them and breaking them apart and seeing what it is that Mark is trying to help us understand about who Jesus is, about the time that Jesus was on this earth. So, beginning in verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. And John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist. And his diet was locusts and wild honey. And he was preaching and saying, After me one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is, is all really the introduction or the preliminary part of the gospel. It's, it is the beginning of the gospel. It is the start of what he is trying to tell us. And he starts off with a reference back to the Old Testament. Mark, we, we saw that he was his mother had a house there in Jerusalem. So obviously we assume that Mark is from Jerusalem. He knows the temple customs. He knows the history of the Jewish people. He knows what's going on. And the first thing that he references is, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. And he points back to the Old Testament. Because he wants us to understand that Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. That what's going on is all connected to what God has been doing throughout history and throughout time. Now, there are allusions in here to possibly three different passages that are being mentioned or talked about in what he says. His focus is on Isaiah. But there, there's some discussion about a quote from Malachi chapter 3 as well as Exodus chapter 23 um, that, that really fit this. And most likely what's going on is that Mark knew the Old Testament well enough that when he's making these quotes, he's referencing really all of the Old Testament and all of the prophecies that are happening, but he focuses in on the specific prophecy of Isaiah that's found in Isaiah 40 and verse 3. <clears throat> and he quotes these things, and he says, I'm, I send my messenger, this is God speaking, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. So John is being set up as the messenger that God is sending to prepare the way for someone. For whoever it is that Isaiah is prophesying about and talking about. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord. 
And John is that messenger that God sent in advance of his Messiah, in advance of his promised one. Mark is making sure that everyone knows the connection of John as the forerunner of the Messiah. As I said, Mark is really focused on Jesus. He's focused on the Messiah. But the Old Testament prophesied that before the Messiah came, there would be a forerunner. There would be someone who goes out and proclaims and prepares the way for that Messiah, for that coming promised one. And Mark is saying, hey, John the Baptist did that, which is fulfillment of prophecy, which sets everything up and gets us ready for the coming of the Messiah. And so John shows up and, and Mark emphasizes three things that John preaches or proclaims. The first is get ready. Make, make ready for the coming Lord. Uh, make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. That's what John the Baptist was there for. <clears throat> now, uh, I mentioned in verse 4 that it doesn't give us any backstory or any information about John the Baptist specifically. It just says that he appeared in the wilderness and as, as I was digging into that one, that one kind of caught my attention. Every now and then you'll, you'll come across a word that's just like, wait a minute, why, why did it use that? Why does it say it that way and not a different way? It, it could have said, you know, after, after a while, John the Baptist, he, he went out to the wilderness and began doing things. And yet in, in Mark's style, like I said, he's, he's going very fast-paced. It's reporting. It's, it's emphasizing the action and the activity. And he just plops John right in the wilderness and says, he appeared there, he became there, he, he starts his ministry there. Now the wilderness has a lot of different things in the, the Hebrew experience. You go through the Old Testament, you find him wandering in the wilderness, you find him dealing with the wilderness. Jesus is going to end up going out into the wilderness, we're going to see that as well. Wilderness appears or pops up a lot, uh, but Mark, he just says, John appeared in the wilderness, that's where he was. But he wasn't just sitting out in the wilderness doing nothing. It says that he appeared in the wilderness and he was preaching something. He was proclaiming or making known something. Well, what was that? He was preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, baptism is an interesting thing. When I say baptism, what comes to your mind? Water. Okay. Okay, a public declaration. Anything else? Okay, the Holy Spirit. Well, there is a lot of discussion about baptism. There's a lot of argument in Christianity about baptism and what it does and what it's for and all of that stuff. We're not going to get really into a lot of that right now because that's not where uh, Mark is going. But the word itself means dip or submerge. And so when you come across some of these arguments about baptism in its modern context with, with sprinkling or pouring or all of that type of thing, that's not what this word means. The word means to dip or to submerge. And so when we find it being mentioned throughout all of this, it's dipping or submerging. Uh, generally speaking, we are talking about in water, but that doesn't mean that that's the only way in which to dip or to submerge can come about. So keep that in mind as you see baptism come up, the word just means to dip, immerse, or submerge, regardless of what medium is being dipped into. <clears throat> That's what the, the word stands for. So when we refer to John the Baptist, um, you could actually say that as John the baptizer, or the one who was dipping, 
or I mean, there's a lot of different ways that that could be phrased. I'm used to John the Baptist, and so that's that's how I'm going to refer to him. I've known others who say John the Baptizer because that emphasizes that he was out there dipping or baptizing people in the Jordan River. Um, but so John the Baptist, he appears on the scene. He's preaching a baptism, but a baptism of what? A baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He was out there dipping people in water, but it wasn't about the water that he was focused on. And, and it's really interesting, if you start looking into some of the history of baptism, and well, why would people be going out for that? What's going on? The, the, there's a lot of connections tied to um, ceremonial cleansing, rituals that the Hebrews would do. They would baptize or they would dip in water, but in all of those, they would dip themselves. They weren't being baptized by someone. They would go and, and submerge themselves into water for a ritual, for a process, for a tradition. And, and there's a variety of ways that that would happen and, and different means. And yet here we see that John is the one who is doing the baptism, baptizing. And so this is disconnecting it from a ritualistic individual activity. He's administering it to those who repent. Now repentance... Uh, you've probably heard a definition of repentance. What, what is to repent? To turn around, right? To be going this way and to turn and go that way. That, that's the most simple, basic way of expressing it. A change of mind that leads to a change of action. That's, that's really what it is. And so I love the example. You, you know that I, I like teaching kids with object lessons because it's memorable. It's easy to think of those things. And so when we deal with this idea of repentance, think of walking this way and realizing, wait a minute, this is the wrong way. This is not where I want to go. And so you turn around and you go the other way. That's what is being talked about here. And this idea of re repentance really becomes inseparable from the gospel as you go through. It starts off here that John is proclaiming it. But when we get to the day of Pentecost and Peter preaches the very first thing that he's talking about is repentance. We even get all the way to the book of Revelation, and Jesus proclaims repentance to five of the seven churches, that they need to repent, that they need to turn and go a different way. And so this idea of repentance brings in uh, a lot throughout the gospel, a lot throughout the New Testament, as we see it come up over and over again. It is that repentance that leads to the forgiveness of sins. It's not John is not saying, come, let me dip you in water, and that's going to get rid of your sins. What John is saying is, come, be baptized, and repent for the remission of sins. That it's that repentance, that churning, turning and changing of directions, that is what leads to the forgiveness of sins. Um, eventually, we're going we're to see the Pharisees rightly point out that it is only God who can forgive sins. It's not them, it's not their actions, it's not their, their things. It's only God that can do that. And as I was, as I was pondering on that and, and looking into it, Psalm chapter 51 came to my mind. And I want to I read a verse out of Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17. If I can turn to the right page, there we go. Thou dost not delight in sacrifice... Otherwise, I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, 
A broken and contrite heart, O God, thou will not despise. And so John, he's out in the wilderness. He's proclaiming that the Messiah is coming. He's making the way and preparing the way. And he is preaching a repentance, a contrite heart. He's not preaching a, a go-through ceremonial ideas or do all of this stuff. He's, he is recognizing that God delights not in sacrifice, but in a broken and contrite heart, in a rightness with who God is. And so as we continue on through this section, we find out that John the Baptist is not emphasized because of his great oratory skills or his amazing appearance, his dress, or anything flashy and fancy about him. John the Baptist is emphasized because of his fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy and because he lays the foundation or he prepares the way for the coming Messiah. As we, as we read on through, um, the result was that all the country of Judea was going out to him. And all the people of Jerusalem, they were coming out to him and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River. They were confessing their sins. John was having a major, massive impact. This was a revival that was happening because the people from that whole area, both the city of Jerusalem and the surrounding Judea, were all going out to him. They were all confessing their sins. They were all being a part of this revival that was happening as John prepared the way for the coming Messiah. Now, in verse 6, it says that he was clothed in camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was locusts and wild honey. Now, this really ties him back to some of the Old Testament prophets. It ties him back into this prophecy that we've been looking at and talking about. It displays who he is, but it also sets him up not as some fancy individual. He's not out there dressed all really pretty and nice and, and bringing the focus upon himself or anything like that. He's just a regular guy who's out doing what God has called him to do. Uh, for John the message was far more important than the messenger. John was not trying to draw followers to himself. And as, as you, if you do take the time to study out John the Baptist, you're going to find that he never really brings attention to himself. That's not what he's about. He is about sending people and deflecting people toward the Messiah, toward the promised one of Israel. He says uh, in verse 7 that he was preaching and saying, After me is one coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandal. He's, he's putting Jesus way up high, and he's putting himself very low because his focus is not on himself. John had a very accurate view of himself and of his Savior. Now, we read through this, and we're like, Okay, he's, he's not worthy to bend down and untie a shoe. That's great. That makes sense. In our modern context, do you want to bend down and untie somebody's shoe? Probably not. Unless you're playing a joke on them, but I wouldn't recommend that. That's not very fun. And so we don't do that. We don't think that way. But in their culture, we've got to remember there's a lot more going on than just untying someone's shoe. They walked everywhere that they went. Uh, this, this last week, my kids and I got to go out to the beach uh, out to the, the bay, which was a lot of fun. Well, they had sandals on because you don't want to go out into the ocean with regular shoes and socks on. And in those sandals, they got them wet, and then they walked through the sand. You ever experienced that? 
And then they spent the whole day walking around, and, and it was lots of fun. We did all kinds of things. At the end of the day, what do you think that their feet were like? Okay, that's part of, of the cultural impact of what's going on here. It, it's not a pleasant thing to mess with somebody's feet. They're not uh, clean and well kept or anything of that nature. But there's even more than that. See, in, in their environment and in their culture, they, there would be a lot of leaders who would have their disciples. We're going to see that happen with Jesus. That happens with John as well. Well, culturally, there was a standard in which the followers, the disciples, could be treated, in essence, like a slave. They had to do anything that their master, that the rabbi, would ask them to do. But there was one thing that the teachers were not allowed to ask them to do. They could tell them, hey, prepare me a meal. They could tell them, go um, draw me a bath. They could tell them, you know, bring me my scrolls. They could tell them, you know, spoon feed me, whatever. Any of that was allowed. The one thing that they were not allowed to do was to tell them to untie their sandals. Because that was too low. That was too degrading for a master, for a, a leader, for a, um, for a teacher to demand of their students. That was reserved for the lowest slave. The lowest of the low was the only person that could be asked to untie their shoes. And so, as we begin to realize more about this, this idea of, of what it would be to stoop down and untie someone's sandal, we realize this isn't just, you know, I'm, I'm just kind of a lowly nobody. John is saying that that is the lowest of low positions. And I'm not even worthy to do that. See, John has a very accurate, very high view of who Jesus is. And he recognizes, I am a nobody. I am not even worthy of being called the lowest of the low servant in the house of God. That's, that's not who I am. And so, as I said, John was more focused on the message than the messenger. He realizes he's, he is not of, of great value or great importance. And that's what Mark is recording for us. And so, John emphasizes that he can't even be worthy to do this job. So, what are we to take from that? What are we to, to learn from this idea? I think that Mark is recording for us who John is and giving us just a, a brief introduction, like I said, to emphasize that he is the forerunner of Christ, that he is the fulfillment of prophecy, but he records this, this aspect or this thing that he's talking about because John recognizes it's not about him. And, and we need to have that same view it's not about me. It's not about, you know, I'm not the one who's, who's able to do all of these things. I'm not the one to bring the attention to. Additionally, there's a tendency to make Jesus just a buddy. He's a friend. He's, he's someone close to us, and we, we get to buddy-buddy up with him. And that's not what John is doing. When John declares who the Messiah is, he's giving a very accurate recognition that Jesus is so high and so lifted up that he is God himself, and that that is worthy of all the reverence, all the adoration, everything. And I, as his servant, as his slave, are not even worthy of being the lowest of the low. And so John has a very, very accurate and correct view of who Jesus is. 
We need to have that same view, that same recognition. But then he doesn't end it there. He goes on to make a declaration in verse 8. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John is recognizing that there's a limit to the service of what he's able to do. There's a limit to his sermons. There's a limit to his capability. He is there to serve. He is there to do what God has called him to do. He is there to fulfill whatever uh, mission God has sent him on. But there's a limit to what John is able to do. But Jesus, he's going to be doing something way bigger, way better, way more impactful than what I'm able to do. I, I just dip you in water. And, and there's a lot that goes into that. We saw repentance is a wonderful thing. But, but John's saying, you know, I'm limited to just dunking you in water. But Jesus is coming. And he's going to be able to baptize you or dip you, submerge you, immerse you in the Holy Spirit. Now, Mark doesn't explain what all that means or how that works or what's going on with that. We're going to get to some of that eventually. But right now in this, we're, we're just going to leave it there. We're not going to try and say, oh, you know, Holy Spirit baptism is this or that or, or how all of that fits together because that's not where Mark's going with this. But we recognize and we, we ought to take from this that John is the messenger. John is the servant. And that's what he's there for. That's what he's trying to do. But he has an accurate and right view that Jesus is so much more and so much better and going to have such a great ministry and so, what do we take from this? What do we learn from this? I think we've got two takeaways. We've got two things that we need to, to recognize from this. Just as John was preaching repentance then, we need to be aware. Have we repented? Have we turned away from, from what displeases God? And have we turned to what God wants us to do? That's a, that's a constant thing that we need to be reminded of. And then secondly, I want to encourage you to recognize where you stand. What is your position? What is your job? What is your mission? What is your ministry? We've seen with Mark how that he, he initially didn't do so great, and then he was able to be useful. He was able to serve. We've seen with John the Baptist that he was given a job. He was given an expectation. He was not in and of himself flashy or amazing or wonderful, and yet... God was able to use him in great ways. But he always recognized that he's, he's not the important one. Jesus is. And so we need to repent in the areas that we need to turn away from. We also need to recognize what has God called us to? What mission, what ministry has God put us here for? Are we serving? Are we keeping that right and accurate view of the Messiah, of the promised one of Israel? Are we fulfilling what God wants from us as well? Because that's what John the Baptist is there for. He's there to prepare the way for the Messiah. We ought to also be sharing the gospel, spreading the word, preaching repentance, preaching the awesomeness, the amazingness, the supremacy of Christ. Let's pray. Dear Lord Father, thank you for your word. Thank you as we embark on this study of Mark. Uh, that There is so much for us to learn so many different ways that we can and will be challenged. And Lord, I, I pray that as we study, as we dig into it, that we would submit ourselves to you. We would recognize we are not in charge. We are not in control. Uh, we are not even worthy to be the lowest of low servants for you. 
And yet you have called us to a job, to a mission, to a ministry. Lord, help us to fulfill what you desire of us. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for our time in it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.